Section 92 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 92. A Campaign Through the Water, 1778, by George Rogers Clark. By means of the two bold campaigns of George Rogers Clark, the United States was, at the close of the Revolution, in possession of the land west of the Ohio, and so was able to secure the Mississippi instead of the Ohio as a western boundary. The Editor Everything being ready, on the 5th of February, after receiving a lecture and absolution from the priest, we crossed the Kaskaskia River, with one hundred and seventy men, marched about three miles and encamped, where we lay until the seventh and set out. The weather wet, but fortunately not cold for the season, and a great part of the plains under water several inches deep. It was difficult and very fatiguing marching. My object was now to keep the men in spirits. I suffered them to shoot game on all occasions, and feast on it like Indian war dancers each company by turns inviting the others to their feasts, which was the case every night, as the company that was to give the feast was always supplied with horses to lay up a sufficient store of wild meat in the course of the day, myself and principal officers putting on the woodsmen, shouting now and then, and running as much through the mud and water as any of them. Thus insensibly, without a murmur, were those men led on to the banks of the little Wabash, which we reached on the thirteenth, through incredible difficulties, far surpassing anything that any of us had ever experienced. Frequently the diversions of the night wore off the thoughts of the preceding day. We formed a camp on a height which we found on the bank of the river, and suffered our troops to amuse themselves. I viewed this sheet of water for some time with distrust, but accusing myself of doubting, I immediately set to work, without holding any consultation about it, or suffering anybody else to do so in my presence, ordered a pirogue to be built immediately, and acted as though crossing the water would be only a piece of diversion. As but few could work at the pirogue at the time, pains were taken to find diversion for the rest to keep them in high spirits. In the evening of the 14th, our vessel was finished, manned, and sent to explore the drowned lands on the opposite side of the little Wabash, with private instructions what report to make, and if possible to find some spot of dry land. They found about half an acre, and marked the trees from thence back to the camp, and made a very favorable report. Fortunately, the 15th happened to be a warm, moist day for the season. The channel of the river where we lay was about thirty yards wide. A scaffold was built on the opposite shore, which was about three feet under water, and our baggage ferried across and put on it. Our horses swam across and received their loads at the scaffold, by which time the troops were also brought across and we began our march through the water. By evening we found ourselves encamped on a pretty height, in high spirits, 
each party laughing at the other in consequence of something that had happened in the course of this ferrying business as they called it a little antic drummer afforded them great diversion by floating on his drum etc all this was greatly encouraged and they really began to think themselves superior to other men and that neither the rivers nor the seasons could stop their progress their whole conversation now was concerning what they would do when they got about the enemy they now began to view the main wabash as a creek and made no doubt but such men as they were could find a way to cross it they wound themselves up to such a pitch that they soon took post-wind senses divided the spoil and before bedtime were far advanced on the route to detroit all this was no doubt pleasing to those of us who had more serious thoughts we were now convinced that the whole of the low country on the wabash was drowned and that the enemy could easily get to us if they discovered us and wished to risk an action if they did not we made no doubt of crossing the river by some means or other even if captain rogers with our galley did not get to his station agreeable to his appointment we flattered ourselves that all would be well and marched on in high spirits the last day's march through the water was far superior to anything the frenchmen had an idea of they were backward in speaking said that the nearest land to us was a small league called the sugar camp on the bank of the river a canoe was sent off and returned without finding that we could pass i went in her myself and sounded the water found it deep as to my neck i returned with a design to have the men transported on board the canoes to the sugar camp which i knew would spend the whole day and ensuing night as the vessels would pass slowly through the bushes the loss of so much time to men half starved was a matter of consequence i would have given now a great deal for a day's provision or for one of our horses i returned but slowly to the troops giving myself time to think on our arrival all ran to hear what was the report every eye was fixed on me i unfortunately spoke in a serious manner to one of the officers the whole were alarmed without knowing what i said i viewed their confusion for about one minute whispered to those near me to do as i did immediately put some water in my hand poured on powder blackened my face gave the war-whoop and marched into the water without saying a word the party gazed and fell in one after another without saying a word like a flock of sheep i ordered those near me to begin a favorite song of theirs it soon passed through the line and the whole went on cheerfully i now intended to have them transported across the deepest part of the water but when about waist deep one of the men informed me that he thought he felt a path we examined and found it so and concluded that it kept on the highest ground which it did and by taking pains to follow it we got to the sugar camp without the least difficulty where there was about half an acre of dry ground at least not under water where we took up our lodging the frenchmen that we had taken on the river appeared to be uneasy at our situation they begged that they might be permitted to go in the two canoes to town in the night they said that they would bring from their own houses provisions without the possibility of any persons knowing it 
that some of our men should go with them as a surety of their good conduct, that it was impossible we could march from that place till the water fell, for the plain was too deep to march. Some of the officers believed that it might be done. I would not suffer it. I never could well account for this piece of obstinacy, and give satisfactory reasons to myself or anybody else why I denied a proposition, apparently so easy to execute, and of so much advantage. But something seemed to tell me that it should not be done, and it was not done. The most of the weather that we had on this march was moist and warm for the season. This was the coldest night we had. The ice in the morning was from one-half to three-quarters of an inch thick near the shores, and in still water. The morning was the finest we had on our march. A little after sunrise I lectured the hall. What I said to them I forget, but it may easily be imagined by a person that could possess my affections for them at that time. I concluded by informing them that passing the plain that was then in full view and reaching the opposite woods would put an end to their fatigue, that in a few hours they would have a sight of their long-wished-for object, and immediately stepped into the water without waiting for any reply. A huzzah took place. As we generally marched through the water in a line, before the third entered I halted, and called to Major Bowman, ordering him to fall to the rear with twenty-five men, and put to death any man who refused to march, as we wished to have no such person among us. The whole gave a cry of approbation, and on we went. This was the most trying of all the difficulties we had experienced. I generally kept fifteen or twenty of the strongest men next myself, and judged from my own feelings what must be that of others. Getting about the middle of the plain, the water about mid-deep, I found myself sensibly failing, and, as there were no trees nor bushes for the men to support themselves by, I feared that many of the most weak would be drowned. I ordered the canoes to make the land, discharge their loading, and play backward and forward with all diligence, and pick up the men, and, to encourage the party, sent some of the strongest men forward, with orders, when they got to a certain distance, to pass the word back that the water was getting shallow, and when getting near the woods to cry out land. This stratagem had its desired effect. The men, encouraged by it, exerted themselves almost beyond their abilities, the weak holding by the stronger. The water never got shallower, but continued deepening. Getting to the woods, where the men expected land, the water was up to my shoulders, but gaining the woods was of great consequence. All the low men and the weakly hung to the trees, and floated on the old logs until they were taken off by the canoes. The strong and tall got ashore and built fires. Many would reach the shore, and fall with their bodies half in the water, not being able to support themselves without it. This was a delightful dry spot of ground of about ten acres. We soon found that the fires answered no purpose, but that two strong men taking a weaker one by the arms was the only way to recover him, and being a delightful day it soon did. But fortunately, as if designed by providence, a canoe of Indian squaws and children was coming up to town, 
and took through part of this plain as a nigh way. It was discovered by our canoes as they were out after the men. They gave chase and took the Indian canoe, on board of which was near half a quarter of a buffalo, some corn, tallow, kettles, etc. This was a grand prize and was invaluable. Broth was immediately made and served out to the most weekly with great care. Most of the whole got a little, but the great many gave their part to the weekly, jocosely saying something cheering to their comrades. This little refreshment and fine weather by the afternoon gave new life to the whole. Crossing a narrow deep lake in the canoes, and marching some distance, we came to a copse of timber called the Warrior's Island. We were now in full view of the fort and town, not a shrub between us, at about two miles' distance. Every man now feasted his eyes and forgot that he had suffered anything, saying that all that had passed was owing to good policy and nothing but what a man could bear, and that the soldier had no right to think, etc., passing from one extreme to another, which is common in such cases. It was now we had to display our abilities. The plain between us and the town was not a perfect level. The sunken grounds were covered with water full of ducks. We observed several men out on horseback, shooting them within a half mile of us, and sent out as many of our active young Frenchmen to decoy and take one of these men prisoner, in such a manner as not to alarm the others, which they did. The information we got from this person was similar to that which we got from those we took on the river, except that of the British having, that evening completed, the ball of the fort, and that there were a good many Indians in town. Our situation was now truly critical, no possibility of retreating in case of defeat, and in full view of a town that had, at this time, upward of six hundred men in it, troops, inhabitants, and Indians. The crew of the galley, though not fifty men, would have been known a reinforcement of immense magnitude to our little army, if I may so call it. But we would not think of them. We were now in the situation that I had laboured to get ourselves in. The idea of being made prisoner was foreign to almost every man, as they expected nothing but torture from the savages if they fell into their hands. Our fate was now to be determined, probably in a few hours. We knew that nothing but the most daring conduct would ensure success. I knew that a number of the inhabitants wished us well, that many were lukewarm to the interest of either, and I also learned that the Grand Chief, the Tobacco's son, had but a few days before openly declared, in council with the British, that he was a brother and friend to the Big Knives. These were favourable circumstances and, as there was but little probability of our remaining until dark undiscovered, I determined to begin the career immediately, and wrote the following placard to the inhabitants. To the inhabitants of Fort Vincennes, Gentlemen, being now within two miles of your village with my army, determined to take your fort this night, and not being willing to surprise you, I take this method to request such of you as are true citizens and willing to enjoy the liberty I bring you, to remain still in your houses, and those, if any there be, that are friends to the king, will instantly repair to the fort and join the hair-buyer-general. Footnote. 
Hamilton offered rewards for American scalps, end footnote, and fight like men. And if any such as do not go to the fort shall be discovered afterward, they may depend on severe punishment. On the contrary, those who are true friends to liberty may depend on being well treated, and I once more request them to keep out of the streets. For every one I find in arms on my arrival, I shall treat him as an enemy. Signed, G. R. Clark. I had various ideas on the supposed result of this letter. I knew that it would do us no damage, but that it would cause the lukewarm to be decided, encourage our friends, and astonish our enemies. We anxiously viewed this messenger until he entered the town, and in a few minutes could discover by our glasses some stir in every street that we could penetrate into, and great numbers running or riding out into the commons we supposed to view us, which was the case. But what surprised us was that nothing had yet happened that had the appearance of the garrison being alarmed, no drum nor gun. We began to suppose that the information we got from our prisoners was false, and that the enemy already knew of us and were prepared. A little before sunset we moved, and displayed ourselves in full view of the town, crowds gazing at us. We were plunging ourselves into certain destruction, or success. There was no midway thought of. We had but little to say to our men, except inculcating an idea of the necessity of obedience, etc. We knew they did not want encouraging, and that anything might be attempted with them that was possible for such a number. Perfectly cool, under proper subordination, pleased with the prospect before them, and much attached to their officers. They all declared that they were convinced that an implicit obedience to orders was the only thing that would ensure success, and hoped that no mercy would be shown the person that should violate them. Such language as this from soldiers to persons in our station must have been exceedingly agreeable. We moved on slowly in full view of the town, but, as it was a point of some consequence to us to make ourselves appear as formidable, we, in leaving the covert that we were in, marched and countermarched in such a manner that we appeared numerous. In raising volunteers in the Illinois, every person that set about the business had a set of colors given him, which they brought with them to the amount of ten or twelve pairs. These were displayed to the best advantage, and, as the low plain we marched through was not a perfect level, but had frequent risings in it, seven or eight feet higher than the common level, which was covered with water. And as these risings generally ran in an oblique direction to the town, we took the advantage of one of them, marching through the water under it, which completely prevented our being numbered. But our colors showed considerably above the heights, as they were fixed on long poles procured for the purpose, and at a distance made no despicable appearance. And as our young Frenchmen had, while we lay on the warrior's island, decoyed and taken several fowlers with their horses, Officers were mounted on these horses, and rode about, more completely to deceive the enemy. In this manner we moved, and directed our march in such a way as to suffer it to be dark before we had advanced more than halfway to the town. We then suddenly altered our direction, and crossed ponds where they could not have suspected us, 
and about eight o'clock gained the heights back of the town. As there was yet no hostile appearance, we were impatient to have the cause unriddled. Lieutenant Bailey was ordered, with fourteen men, to march and fire on the fort. The main body moved in a different direction, and took possession of the strongest part of the town. The attack upon the town continued for some thirty-six hours. Then the audacious young leader sent a demand for surrender. It was promptly refused. Nevertheless, the surrender took place before the close of the day. End of section 92